As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Marvin Lowe joins us now, Senior Global Macro Strategist at State Street. Marvin, wonderful to have you with us on a program. Tom wanted to talk about the note from Sockgen's Kit Jukes this morning. He said this, US data will dominate sentiment and will probably deliver solid retail sales, decent industrial production. The debt limit remains a major issue, but for now, evidence <coughs> of recession is missing. Marvin, is recession evidence missing right now for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly not clear. Um, I, I still think that a recession is unfortunately somewhat unavoidable after the banking uh, situation. And, you know, we're waiting for that to make its way through the economy. But the consumer is still strong. Jobs are still, uh, you know, robust based on the latest numbers. And inflation is proving sticky. I look, Marvin, at the inflation proving sticky, and yet there's a single headline from Home Depot. Granted, it's a commodity. Granted, it's volatile. But lumber deflation. Are we going to see more headlines like that? You know what? Uh, um, probably. You know, the good the good side of things has has been a bit more volatile in this discussion. Um, you know, it does come down to services, wages in this economy, um, and that's really where the Fed is focused on. Um, and it is the stickiest of the sticky, if you will, parts of uh, the inflation right. discussion. But on a global basis, I mean, I looked at copper very carefully this morning. I looked at Newcastle Coal in Australia, folks. This is north of Perth. And, you know, I, I, I look at these commodities, and the fact is they're rolling over, indicative of a slowing China, maybe a misguess on the Pacific Rim. How do you fold that into your investment allocation at State Street? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for sure, it is signs that um, you've got growth problems that are starting to emerge as we go through, you know, the, the one year anniversary of this aggressive tightening cycle within the developed markets. Um, those recessionary signals are, are, all, are all over the place. Um, it is this kind of one slice of the American consumer that's making it um, harder to, to play. But I think if you can look past the timing of, um, of this consumer, which, again, with some of these retail earnings, with some of this data that's coming out softer, you do get to a, a much slower growth type of uh, discussion. And, you know, if you're willing to, to put those investments in place, they're out there. Do you think that this is disinflationary to the degree that would give a, a bit of a reprieve to the Fed, especially if the stress that we're seeing in the banking sector is there, is real, but a slow burn that isn't going to necessitate some sort of real response? 
Yeah, for sure. So, so I definitely am in the camp that um, this credit tightening that I expect in the second half of the year is going to have a, a bigger impact on the economy than, you know, maybe some of these risk assets are saying, particularly on the default side of things, particularly on just overall um, loan growth slowing. And and you do get um, a more disinflationary type of world once we get there. Um, it's, it, you know, the timing is, is really hard. It's not really the expertise of global macro to pick one month over another. Um, but, you know, going into 2024, I think that those headwinds uh, seem seem much stiffer. Where is uh, the debt ceiling debate on your radar? Are you excited? Do you wake up every morning to get a sense of the machinations between the different discussion points that the two parties have? You know, what? if um, if you talk to my coworkers, they would say I, I get overly excited about it. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I certainly do think that. Um, the market is a bit uh, sanguine about it this time, particularly given the volatility on the um, deficit side of things. It's just a lot harder to pick the date when we're going to run out of money. Um, and that really creates a problem for Washington, which seems to need that impetus to get things moving. Um, I'm also very cognizant of the amount of uh, reserves that moves around once we get the deal. Um, and that in and of itself creates more challenges for bank deposits, um, at least in the in the short term potentially in the intermediate term, kind of just given how the shape of all these short-term curves are, are somewhat um, inverted at this point. Marvin, let's say we knew the X date was June 1, June 1st. Would there be a different practical X date, a deadline that we had to really come to an agreement on to pass the legislation needed to ultimately skip the dreadful outcomes that most people are predicting if we do go through that X date? Yeah, I, I, I think there would be a greater sense of urgency for sure. Um, we are running out of time very, very quickly. Um, you know, the, the president is still uh, apparently going to the G7. So, um, you know, again, the litany of, of, uh, of conversations that are coming out of Washington show different degrees of, of concern. And that, uh, that in and of itself is a concern when you're talking about a date two, two weeks away. Um, so how you, get, how you get there is really some sort of hopefully acknowledgement that June 1st is a date that we should focus on in a temporary agreement to get us past or else, you know, we go into territory that we've never been before. I thought you were done then, Marvin. Just got trigger happy on All this right. side of the desk. Marvin's like, yeah. killing, it. <laughs> killing it. I just hear the gap. And killing I'm like, it, yeah. Go. Marvin Lowe, <laughs> stay straight. I'm worse thank than you. you. Marvin, thank you. Really important here, I think, to look at the retail data, rip it apart. And someone that can do that, of course, is the gentlelady from PIMCO, Lisa. And this really uh, is the question, especially after we were talking about a discretionary recession. Are we seeing that in the data? Joining us someone who's, is someone who focuses on this all day, every day. Tiffany Wilding, economist at PIMCO, 5.30 a.m. there, local time. Thank you for waking up uh, and keeping Eastern time so that you can partake. But I'm curious, Tiffany, from your vantage point, are you seeing signs of some sort of discretionary recession or is that premature? Yeah, well, I mean, I do think that the consumer, some of the momentum in consumption has decelerated since the beginning of the year. So, you know, Jan or, uh, the first quarter was extremely strong in terms of consumption growth, um, over 3%. You know, but a lot of that, as we know, um, if we look at the sequential monthly data, um, it was really boosted by warm weather in January. And then we saw a deceleration in March, and it looks like we're getting a little bit of a pop back. But but as, as Michael suggested, there's probably some noise around Mother's Day here. So you kind of have to smooth that over. Um, you know, so we would suggest you are seeing some some decline or, or um, you know, uh, growth deceleration um, in consumption. But overall, you know, as as was said, the consumers are hanging in there, you know, and of course, that's also going to be a function of the labor market, you know, and it is still um, it is still reasonably strong. 
hanging in there and willing to pay the prices that are being demanded are two different things. Is there a sense that there really is starting to be some pushback to the inflation that's being borne out in consumers' pocketbooks and in the fattening margins of profits at companies? Yeah, well, so, I mean, we're definitely starting to hear more of that coming from, um, you know, the various earnings releases from some of the consumer companies. Um, you know, they're saying, obviously, that uh, consumers are a little bit more price sensitive in various categories. I, I would say when, when I look at the macro data, um, you know, I, I don't see it as much. And, of course, we need more macro data. You know, if we're starting to see these trends at the company level, they're noticing it, you know, then it'll come out with the macro data with a lag. Um, you know, but but overall, I would say inflation is actually still, um, you know, still reasonably robust. I mean, obviously, at 5% or more, it's over the Fed's target. Um, you know, we do expect it to come down. Um, but it's been, I think it's been, continues to be stickier than expected. Tiffany, I'm, I need to ask you this because in the equity market, I've been looking at the slow motion convergence of moving averages down to what Lisa and I call a snooze fest. I got the same thing in the bond market. If I look at the two-year yield, there's a teensy-weensy two-basis point differential in the three moving averages I use. Does Jerome Powell call that a success to see the lethargy, <laughs> the boredom within the bond market described by the two-year yield? Um, well, you know, I, I, you know, I do think that the bond market does listen to the Fed. Um, you know, I think sometimes commentators like to look at, you know, just the forward curve, which is, which does suggest, um, you know, a significant probability um, that rates will be lower by the end of the year to suggest that, you know, the markets aren't listening to the Fed. Um, I do think the markets are, are listening to the Fed, but I, I just think the markets probably have, um, you know, their, in terms of their distribution of risks, they, they assign more downside risk to the economic outlook. Uh, than the Federal Reserve does. Um, if you take a historical look at, at banking sector crises and stresses defined right. by you know 30% drops on average in banking shares, you do see <laughs> tend to see the economy decelerating after that. Um, you know that'll that'll of course come right. from tighter credit conditions for consumers and households. What do you hear from then your Pimco portfolio managers? Without giving away the crown jewels, what does Pimco say about the dynamics in this banking crisis in agency paper? <laughs> yeah, well, of course, there's some, um, you know, banks that failed, obviously held, um, you know, they held a lot of treasuries as well as agencies, you know, obviously that will need to be sold. We think that's probably priced into the market, though. Um, there's a pretty good understanding of exactly what that is, mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of the how much it is, you know, and obviously the Federal Reserve is also shrinking its portfolio, um, you know, but on the other side of that, um, the, you don't have a refinancing wave because uh, interest rates are so high. So overall, we think it's it's priced in. We actually like agency MBS. Um, we think that they actually provide pretty good value uh, right now just because volatility has been high and the level of interest rates are high. And those things can can mean revert back down. As we prepare for a slew of retail earnings, particularly tomorrow with respect to Target and then Walmart, do we get a sense that perhaps people are too bearish that Home Depot was an outlier and that otherwise, to your point, the consumers are still spending and they can keep borrowing to do so? Well, um, I mean, so the, the data that we got some credit data from, from the Federal Reserve, um, which did look like there was some reduction in, in credit card uh, uh, or, or there, there was a deterioration in, in credit card loans and things like that. 
um, in the first quarter. Um, you know, so I do think there are consumers out there that are, are feeling pain. Um, and I do think banks are tightening credit conditions. You know, the, the other piece of this, obviously, is just demand for credit. Um, and demand for credit is also falling just because rates are so high. Um, you, you obviously, it's more expensive to take out loans, et cetera. So, you know, all of this to me is suggestive that, you know, monetary policy is working. Um, you know, the consumer, you know, ultimately it is, they are getting squeezed, some of the lower income consumers more so than others. Um, you know, and, and you are seeing some deceleration in, in credit growth as a result of, of the current environment. So as you put this all together, is inflation decelerating enough to really get the Fed where they want? Or are we looking at a sort of higher inflation, but also higher growth kind of area for a longer period of time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's yet to be seen. Um, you know, as I as I mentioned, we do think this banking sector uh, stress is is going to impact the economy. It's going to slow things down. H- higher interest rates take time to work their th- their way through the economy with a lag. Um, and you know, I would even say inflation even lags. Uh, you know activity uh, momentum. So growth. So, you know, we, we, I think we're, we're seeing these lags start to play out. You, are, you have seen inflation decelerate. It's probably going to continue to decelerate given the monetary policy restriction that's in place. And the Federal Reserve, you know, just needs to be patient, as does markets, just needs to be patient to see that. <coughs> Um, you know, so we think inflation does decelerate to three percent um, core CPI, for example, by year end, um, three to three and a half. Um, you know, but obviously that's still above target. Um, there's still some sticky trends in inflation. You know, but ultimately the Fed probably will be successful in in, in getting it back. The question is, you know, how you know how big of a recession do they need to do that? I think. Thank you, uh, Tiffany. Well, greatly appreciate it with Pimco. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Lindsay Rosener of Pigeon Fixed Income weighing in on the market reaction, writing the following. There's a kink in the T-bill curve around the X day with 100 <coughs> basis points of extra yield. If we don't get a resolution, we're just kicking the can down the road and not eliminating the problem. This makes the T-bill market, Tom, right. a challenging place to be. Really good note from someone really qualified to talk about this. And of course, with all the hierarchy of PGM and the excellence they've done over the years, Ms. Rosner joins us uh, right now. Lindsay, I, the note really goes to the opportunity that's out there. What is the opportunity given a discontinuous function in the three-month T-bill? How do you play it? Right. I, I think the answer is you, you don't play it. Um, There's so much talk right now about getting this extra 100 basis points, but 
If you think about it, the downside, if we actually do have a default, which we think happens with a 5% probability, um, 100 basis points is just not good enough upside downside analysis. So for us, it's skip the games in the front end of the curve and get more into the intermediate duration space where you can take advantage of well, doing the right kind of things. I mean, what's so important here, Lindsay, and this is to the elasticity or responsiveness of the belly of the curve five to seven years, I'll call it as well. Then what's the opportunity there? How do you play that? I think there are a lot of opportunities and, and you can go kind of any which way you want. So if you want to be more conservative, you want to stay more investment grade, great opportunities in agency mortgage-backed securities, even commercial mortgage-backed securities, if you stay high quality, um, top of the cap structure, triple A's with a lot of credit enhancement, there's good stuff to do in investment grade space, a lot of opportunity there. But if you want to seek more risk, go for more yield, there are idiosyncratic opportunities in high yield. So you've got kind of a diner menu of options in the middle of the curve, and you don't have to get stuck in this noise or the anxiety that you all were speaking of in the very front end of the curve. That is really hard to play. And the big problem is, is that if the debt ceiling, if, if the quick solution is prioritization, that's just kicking the problem a couple, a month, two months down the road, you're going to be right back in it. And so if you thought you did something cute and you bought T-bills two months out, well, you may now be back at the X state before you know it. And it's just not a game worth playing. Okay. That said, if this, let's say, gets resolved, do you then get more risk on? Do you start to get more aggressive in other areas that go beyond just simply the idiosyncratic trades? So we go back to, uh, with your prior guest, you're asking, okay, this gets resolved, what's next? And, and the what's next is we go back to what we were concerned about, which is we still have the central banks across the globe that are trying to fight inflation. And there are parts of the globe where we still have double-digit inflation. So this battle isn't over. And we need to think about how does the curve respond? Right now, we all know that there's a significant amount of cuts priced in in the U.S., for example, at the end of the year. How does that work out moving forward? And so we go back to inflation watch. We get out of debt ceiling watch and we move back to inflation watch and figuring out, is a recession happening? Will it be a soft landing? And in that scenario, it still isn't yet green light risk on. We've been talking about that Bank of America fund manager survey, and one aspect of it was that allocations to bonds are the biggest going back to 2009. This is the latest one uh, from May. How much does that give you a sense that things are crowded in the duration trade? Basically, this idea that longer term, there is a confidence that we're going to be low inflation, low rate kind of uh, you know, trading the same way that we were over the past few decades. I think what we've got here are some big shifts in asset allocation or portfolio allocation. Forever, there was the discussion of the 60-40. 60-40 is not really working. Um, if you have a move to this 50-50 or even more fixed income, that then tells you that these flows make sense and they are stickier than, than one may think. Also, as we've been saying all year, you've got income and fixed income. This isn't a place that you just park it because you're scared. There's a lot to earn here. And so I think that movement into fixed income is well-founded. I'm obviously biased as a fixed income manager, but I think it makes a lot of sense now and it didn't make much sense for a very long time. Do you think the allocations are just generally increasing in a structural manner to fixed income and decreasing to equities so that it might be more of a 50-50 kind of new portfolio? I, I think time will tell. Um, I do think it's moving in that direction and I think that direction makes a lot of sense. 
Lindsay, got to wrap it up there. <clears throat> Always enjoy your insight, particularly on the debt ceiling. You know, for once, we're actually having some intelligent conversations, Tom, on the debt ceiling this morning. Lindsay Rosner there on the bond market. Right now in Washington, and we're going to try to take a different spin here. Isaac Moltansky joins us, Director of Policy Research at BTIG. Exquisitely good on the, the distillate of when we're done with this. Isaac, first question. The morning after this is fixed, what happens? We go on to fight about other things, Tom. You know, then the morning after, then we're going to refocus on whatever the next big legislative deadline is and that may be right. the spending bill at the end of september it may be the farm bill but when we get this off the table i think the market can go back to worrying about everything else because the debt ceiling right. is so important i look isaac and and this goes back folks to uh pete peterson the gentleman from nebraska who called me up he was quite elderly at the time and he and i talked about his ageless concern isaac where the former secretary of commerce made clear he was forever worried about this debt the peterson foundation publishes that CBO interest expense over the next 10 years will go from $640 billion to $1.4 trillion. That's the interest expense. Every American knows that's nuts. Why shouldn't we be concerned about this? We absolutely should. We absolutely should. But D.C. has an, has an inability to focus on the long term, right? We are focused definitionally on short termism. And even when we have these discussions regarding the debt ceiling and maybe spending, we've already taken off the table talks about addressing long term entitlement reform, which, as we know, is one of the larger drivers of our debt. And so we've also taken off the table defense spending and other items. And so when you start with so many sacred cows, it's impossible to actually get anywhere over the long term. So the most we can hope for, Tom, from these negotiations is just not shooting ourselves in the foot with a technical default and having to go through the mess of prioritization and whatever else may come from not doing the basic job of lifting the debt ceiling. Isaac, I'd love you to build on what Wendy Schiller was talking about at Brown University earlier this morning when she said that in our ultra-polarized world, she expects things to uh, sort of be a repeat of 2011 in a bit, but with a less satisfying legislative uh, solution, basically saying that Republicans tend to want the government to go into some sort of default or at least some sort of non-payment because it plays well in terms of them taking a hard line on spending. Is that true or is that not really borne out in your experience? I don't think that we're there yet. And I'm still operating under the old maxim that things in D.C. are impossible right up until the point that they're inevitable. And I do hope that we're able to get some progress today where we're able to move forward on that list of menu items that we've all seen reported about over the past few days to the point where perhaps President Biden leaves his G7 meeting early or uh, skips Australia and some of the other stops, comes back, has a one on one with Kevin McCarthy as early as next week, and then at least in my base case here is we just have a deal that pushes the debt ceiling deadline to the end of September, which then aligns it with the federal spending deadline and gives negotiators a little bit more time because, look, they're trying to solve some pretty thorny issues when in reality, you got to have something starting to move its way through the legislative process by the beginning of next week. As we wait for paint to dry and get a sense of when things get to be a little bit more urgent, we're going to have the hearings uh, with respect to what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and all of the regulatory oversight. We already got a look at some of the uh, pre-released questions from the former CEO of SVB blaming the Fed, blaming regulators, blaming 
social media. What do you expect the response to be? Look, the reality is hearings very rarely change the policy trajectory. And and we need investors to know that the regulatory framework is going to be tightened for banks. They're going to start with super regionals for for their total long-term debt requirements and resolution requirements. And then they're going to go down to the $100 billion plus bucket and, and start to deal with things like AOCI. But, but my issue here is I don't think this banking crisis is over. I think it's going to flare up again. And what we're going to have to deal with when we look at the postmortem for this crisis is what was the logic behind us tying the hands of the regulators on the front line to address these crises? The FDIC has nothing else it can do administratively to address this deposit insurance issue. So once again, we're waiting on a Congress that's either unwilling or unable to act on the matter. And, you know, frankly, that scares me because we're not through the woods yet on the banking issue. Well, Isaac, let's tease out a little bit more of that. What about the tension in the last couple of months do you think has the potential to flare up again? Look, I think that we have not addressed the mismatch of assets and liabilities across the banking system. I think that we have not dealt with some of what I think we can all agree were supervisory failures. And we spoke earlier about the Federal Reserve's mandate, and the Federal Reserve is also going to take some flack here. There's a hearing about Federal Reserve reform later this week, worrying that perhaps their guiding star is just monetary policy, and that leads them to fall down on their job as a bank supervisor sometimes. So I think that's still out there. And and look, I, I listened to Jamie Dimon when he also says that, that he's concerned that it's not over. So I put all of that together. I put into that mix the fact that you still have some policymakers talking about the need for a short selling ban on banks. And, and I look and say that our option set for addressing another flare-up, especially if it's in a bigger, um, uh, more systemically important bank, is pretty limited to just Congress passing legislation quickly. And they're not good at that. Isaac, thanks for the perspective. Isaac Botanskin, <coughs> the brutal honesty there at the end from BTIG. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Lisa's an expert on this because she's at Home Depot three times a week. John and I are clueless on this. Somebody really competent is Charles Grom. Chuck Grom is senior retail analyst at Gordon Haskett and joins us right now. And what's so very cool about this out of the College of the Holy Cross is this is one of the coolest things on the securities research side. This gentleman is a CPA and a CFA, and that is bulletproof across Wall Street. Combine the two, combine the accounting, Chuck, and also the financial analysis of the CFA designation. Is Home Depot a different company than the company we've known for 20 years? 
No, not at all. I mean, I think there's a lot going on with the consumer right now, and and, and you touched on it um, in terms of the weather impact. But I think the key line out of the Home Depot release today was demand uh, starting to normalize. And I think that's something we haven't heard from Home Depot in, in quite some time. And I think that's the big issue. And understanding how long that's going to last is really going to weigh on shares here in the near term. But but when you, let's face it, I mean, March was, was very unfavorable from a weather perspective, but April wasn't. And, and we don't know the exit rate for the month of, of right. April, now, but we suspect it was weak. And so you can't hide behind weather right now. One of the distinctions they have is they own the pro market, or at least that's the verbiage. Do they still own the pro market? And is that the Home Depot distinction forward? Oh, 100%. I mean, let's face it, nothing really structurally has changed here with Home Depot. Stock's down a little bit pre-market. They didn't have a great first quarter. They're they're cutting the guide for the year. But pro-business, north of 50% of their sales, they still they still dominate that part of the market, particularly relative to peers. Lowe's is way behind at close to 25%. So again, that has not changed at all today. How much is this really a housing-specific sector issue, a construction-related uh, issue, just simply because there has been so much investment in people's homes, there has been purchases, and prices have gone up so much. Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's all of that. I think demand normalization again is the key here. Um, but you know, w- when rates are this high, people are not moving. But let's say that people have jobs, so they're still investing in their homes. We're just seeing category demand normalization across the board. Um, and I and I do think that their seasonal business will learn more on the nine o'clock call was also soft because of some of the issues with weather here. We are seeing low shares uh, down in sympathy, as you can see, yeah. those shares down almost four percent as well. Yeah. So people seeming to believe this is a sector specific issue. Issue. Moving ahead to Target tomorrow and then Walmart on Thursday, how much are we going to see a similar trend in those retailers at a time when a lot of different stores are saying that they can pass along price increases and then some? I think retailers are going to have a much harder time you know, taking price from here. I think we're starting to see the consumer push back. We're seeing consumers start to trade down into companies like Walmart and into categories and, and private brands in particular. Um, so we're, we're cautious on Target. We're, we're more optimistic on, on Walmart. I think that the key thing here is we're starting to go through a discretionary recession across retail. And I think we're actually already in it. And I think we're going to start to hear that from a lot of companies over the next couple of weeks. If you rewind the clock, you know, the past couple of weeks, we heard from Costco, their business has been softer. It's very atypical for Costco to have that volatility in their business. So if Costco's volatility is there, Home Depot's business is softening. Right. It's happening everywhere. One of my big themes, Chuck, is management's adapt. How does retail adapt to the slowdown you describe? Is it layoffs? Is it protect the margin and EBITDA at all costs? What's the prescription here looking at history? Well, I mean, the, the number one thing they need to do is protect the balance sheet and, and control inventory levels. And if there's anything that could happen in 2022 was demand started to soften and, and inventories started to get in better shape. Are they there yet? Not really across the board, but they'll start to get there. And, you know, for Home Depot, their their SG&A expense control was 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 very, very good in the first quarter. That's why even with softer business, they were, they were able to come in with earnings of 382. So the first thing will be inventory. Second thing will be, be cost control. And I think the, the third leg would be would be job cuts down the road if business continues to deteriorate. Chuck, that phrase, discretionary recession, can we dig into that just a little bit more? Is that sure. up and down income brackets? Does that go from goods to services? Can you give me a little bit more detail on what you're looking for there? Well, I think it's a little bit more goods than services right now. I mean, you look at the travel industry and anybody that's been at the airport or been on an airplane in the past few months, they're always full. So people are are definitely shifting spend towards services. 
But I think it's the categories that that my my companies sell into. We're just seeing softness across the board. You know, whether it's whether it's consumer electronics, whether it's home furnishings, whether it's home improvement. In this in this case, um, you know, again, all three of those are, are starting to see weakness. Chuck, how much is this going to really challenge the the fact that companies have been raising prices beyond their input prices? In other words, that profit margin has to come in much more than people are expecting. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I mean, and, and that's where we're going to have to watch the elasticity across the board. Um, you know, we're starting to see it in discretionary areas start to normalize on the price front. We'll start to see it in, in CPG areas, food areas in, in the coming months as inflation starts to starts to pull back. Um, I'll just point out that just traffic across retail has been very, very soft over the past two months. And that's always a harbinger of things to come. And it doesn't look good. The consumer's pulling back. And, and frankly, like none of this should surprise um, after the past couple of years of, of splurging across the consumer yeah. space. Chuck, I'm looking at this weekend buying the American push mower for $82 from Home Depot. I mean, we got a most Central Park. I got to do my part for Mayor Adams. Where's their perfume section? What part of Home Depot is where they really make the margin as they get to 16% EBITDA? Uh, it, it's really pretty even across the board. Um, it really in the seasonal areas, home furnishing area, that that's where the margins tend to be the best. But if you go back to here, that this print for for Home Depot again, like it, it's not pretty, but the gross margins are actually pretty well protected, and their inventory levels are in good shape. So it, it's not a great print from Home Depot this morning, but it's also not the end of the world in my opinion. Chuck, this was smart. Let's do this again yeah. soon. Chuck Grom there right. of Golden Haskett. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify. And anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.